Under the Constitution, we basically have three arms of government. We've got the legislature, which we call the parliament. Then separately, once law is created, we end up with legislation or acts. And those acts are then interpreted by the courts. And we refer to that as the judiciary. Thirdly, we've got the administrator. And in this case, it's the commissioner of taxation who administers the laws. They do not interpret them as such. That is really a job for the courts but they do provide guidance. So they're basically the three arms of government. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 145 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. So we have three arms of government around tax, parliament, courts and ATO. And over the next two episodes, Robin Jacobson of TaxBenter will go through each of these for us to better understand how tax law is actually made. I first met Robin through her podcast, Taxiac which I highly recommend to you. It is really good and it is so good because Robin talks about tax for a living. She's a tax trainer with TaxBenter and has been a tax trainer for over 20 years and has nearly three decades of tax experience. So Robin knows Australian tax and she does a lot of advocacy work in Canberra and elsewhere. So perfect to ask for more insights about the government side of our tax system. Before the actual interview, I asked Robin a few personal questions and I wanted to share her answers with you since they will give you a better context of what she will talk about later on. I just think back to when I was a young accountant and I used to look at my partners and bosses and directors and I thought they were really, really smart people. And they were smart, but I think as the years go on, I've realised that they also had experience at the time that I didn't have. And once you've gone through a number of cycles of budgets and elections and cases going on appeal and policy being developed and then enacted and then changed with subsequent amendments, you get to better understand how the system works. But it can be quite overwhelming when you first come into it. you are a CPA, you're also CAA and Z, which is actually quite rare. Most people are either a CPA or they are CAA and Z. How does it come that you're both? I was uh, working in chartered firms before I moved into tax training. So that was my background. But over the years, I got more involved in conferences and particularly CPA Australia conferences. And for many years, I was standing up in front of them as a chartered accountant without a CPA membership. And that was something that we felt needed to be rectified. But also, Now that I am a member of CPA Australia, and I, I add that I'm now a fellow of both Chartered Accountants and CPA Australia, but in my membership, I can now represent CPA Australia at consultations and, and submissions and, and get involved in the advocacy work. In Taxi Act, you've mentioned your advocacy work with government and EATO. How does that come about? Look, I find with advocacy, you need to be in the right space, but also one opportunity leads on to another. And my first consultation with the tax office was many, many years ago where I got involved in things like TFN withholding and TFN reporting and TB statements and that sort of thing. And 
Once you start contributing to these sorts of forums where you're sitting in a, in a room with Treasury or with the ATO, or you're writing written submissions, I find that there is a, you know, an opportunity to give something to that process. And then in turn, you often find that it leads on to others. But you've also got to be proactive. You've got to be willing to put the time in to sit there and analyse a draft bill or a draft ruling and get involved. So one of the major consultations I've been involved in the last three years is single touch payroll. And that was because I saw a, an opportunity to help the ATO implement, which is a, a major reform that's affecting hundreds of thousands of businesses right across the country. And a lot of accountants need to get their heads around it. And if there's a way through these consultations that we can provide practical input, then I think we end up with a better product at the end of it. So how is tax law made in Australia? How did we end up with the tax legislation we have? Here's Robin with some insights. If we just set the scene and set out exactly what all this looks like before we launch into the process, because coming back to the basics, you know, when Australia was set up as a modern federation, so 1901, we had a, a federation of all the states. And under the constitution, we basically have three arms of government. We've got the legislature, which we call the parliament. Now, our parliament is based on the UK Westminster system. So they have two houses, the House of Lords and the House of Commons. In Australia, of course, we refer to that as the Senate and the House of Representatives. And the Senate has six representatives from each state and two from each of the territories. And they make up uh, the upper house, as we refer to it. The lower house, the House of Representatives, is based on population. So all the electorates, and there are 151 of those around Australia, they are divvied up into these electorates based on population size. And that then is the basis that whoever holds the majority of votes in that particular seat wins that seat, and whoever forms the majority of seats in the lower house forms government. So that's the legislature. Then separately, once law is created, and I'll talk about that process shortly, we end up with legislation or acts. And those acts are then interpreted by the courts. So when you have uh, disputes with the tax office, that's when you head into the court system and we end up with case decisions and, and case judgments. And then thirdly, and that, no, sorry, I'll go back, and we refer to that as the judiciary. So that's the judicial interpretation of the law. Thirdly, we've got the administrator. And in this case, it's the commissioner of taxation who administers the laws. They do not interpret them as such. That is a really a job for the courts, but they do provide guidance and we get interpretive decisions and, and rulings and other documents that explain how the law works. So they're basically the three arms of government and they're all quite independent from each other. Okay, so in the Senate, you also need to remember that we have six-year terms, but under the Constitution, we have half Senate elections every time the House of Reps goes to the polls. So every three years in the House of Representatives, there is a dissolution of the lower house and all of the members in the lower house are up for re-election. In the Senate, only half of them are up for re-election every three years. But you may recall that in 2016, Malcolm Turnbull, when he was Prime Minister, called a double dissolution election. And that means that both Houses of Parliament are dissolved. And that meant that in 2016, when the New Look Senate came in, everybody was a new senator. 
Now, they had to work out through a special process which of the new senators went on to three-year terms and which went on to six-year terms. So some of those voted back in 2016 were not up for re-election this year. Uh, Their terms go through until 2022. But half of them were up for re-election. And I'll add that the Territory Senators, that's the ACT and the Northern Territory, they don't have six-year terms. They're actually up for re-election every time there is a, a lower house election. So it gets a little bit complicated, but in essence, we're going to have some senators retaining their seats. Some senators have been uh, re-elected. Others were not up for re-election this time around. And of course, we've got some new senators. So it makes for an interesting bunch of people. But coming back to the numbers, I think that the government is likely to have a bit more success in navigating their measures through the upper house in the next term of government. It seems very strange that the um, House of Representatives is voted every three years and, and the Senate is voted every six years, but not the entire Senate is voted. It seems to be only half-half. Does anybody know anymore why that was done back in 1901? Look, I think you'd have to go and ask the founding fathers, but as far as I'm aware, it is modelled broadly on the UK political system. So we do adopt that we adopt that Westminster system. There are obviously some checks and balances, and they felt that the, the Senate being the House of Review, it obviously is having to review all legislation that comes out of the lower house before it becomes law. And they just wanted them to have perhaps a bit more stability and and not be at the mercy of those three-year terms. Personally, I feel that three-year terms are too short in the lower house. Around the states, New South Wales, Victoria, for example, we have four-year fixed terms, a bit like the US does. So we know that every 4th November in the United States, they go to a, a general election. I feel that three years is not long enough in Australia for the lower house because by the time you take all the campaigning out the way and you take away the the opening months of coming into government, you're back to about two to two and a half years of productive, workable time to achieve things. And it's not long enough. So I'd very much be in favour of a a four-year fixed term, but that would require a change to the constitution. I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. So if we now have a chat about the way policy is developed, it usually starts with an announcement. Now, that announcement could actually be preceded by a review. It could be preceded by a concern that the ATO has raised. So if I look at all the announcements we've got in relation to tax policy, they really fall into two categories. One is closing off a loophole or introducing an integrity measure. So if you think about I often think about water running out of a mountain. So if you think about water being the tax leakage, the revenue leakage, and the government is always trying to stop that revenue, so they kind of block it and they try and stop the water running out of the mountain. But water always finds a way. And so even the tax profession itself is always looking for opportunities and avenues to maximise benefits under the existing law. So over the years, and I've watched this over a number of decades, there will be opportunities that used to exist that are then closed over. So that is by way of an announcement and then we get on to enacting that through legislation, which I'll come to. The second type of announcement is often some sort of incentive or a new measure or a benefit or new policy that they want to introduce for whatever reason. And it could be driven by economic factors or environmental or health or equity. Bear in mind, our great objective with tax law is to provide simplicity and fairness and equity. And when you're looking at law that is simple to apply, if it's too simple, then you're not achieving equity across different types of taxpayers. If you want to build that equity in, then generally the law becomes more complex. 
And so it's this trade-off of making sure that the law works, but you're also targeting the right people. So if I go back, you'll often have a review of a particular measure which may say, look, there are some problems with this or we think we need to improve it. There will be an announcement. Federal budgets are typically when the government makes a raft of tax announcements, but they can happen any time during the year. The budget since about 1994, I think, has been the second Tuesday in May. But differently, this year it was held on the 2nd of April. And the reason for that was quite simple is that they had to hold a federal election by the 18th of May due to the timing of uh, when we formed parliament last term. And that then made the the budget have to be held sooner than its normal May date. But typically in mid-May, we get the federal budget and that sets out the measures for the subsequent income year. So once you get your announcement, we then progress typically to a discussion paper. At this stage, the announcements are available typically from the treasurer or the assistant treasurer, and they're available on their own websites. Once we've progressed to discussion paper, it's now in the hands of treasury. So treasury.gov.au has an area called submissions and consultations, and you can have a look in that. And chronologically, they release these discussion papers. They're typically open for a few weeks for comment, but it broadly sets out, based on the announcement, what the policy objective is, what the concern is or what they're trying to change, and then it would ideally set out how they propose to do it. But I can think of some recent discussion papers where it identified what they were trying to do, but it didn't explain how they were going to do it. And I can think of two examples. One has been a discussion paper relating to someone licensing their fame or their image, and the announcement in the budget last year was that those amounts would be accessible back to the individual. Now, the discussion paper that was released said that, look, we want to assess these amounts back to the individual, but it didn't spell out exactly the mechanism as to how they were going to do that. Another example is a proposal that any payment to a business for goods or services over $10,000 could not be made in cash. It would have to be made in the form of cheque or electronic payment. But again, that discussion paper doesn't spell out exactly how that's going to work and what the penalties or the reporting mechanism would be. They give us some information, but not the fine print. One of the most recent and crucial discussion papers we've had was last October when Treasury released a discussion paper on the proposed changes to Division 7A. So for many thousands of businesses out there and structures involving companies and trusts, we're all waiting keenly to see exactly what the government's going to do with these measures. And whilst they announced back in 2016 that they expected reforms to commence on the 1st of July 2018, that start date has now been delayed twice. So we're still in this consultation stage where we're waiting for further information. We haven't yet seen a draft bill and it's due to start 1 July 2020. Once you get past a discussion paper, then the Treasury drafts up what's called exposure draft legislation. So now it looks like a bill. It's got a section number. It's got all the paragraphs. There is draft explanatory material and that accompanies that exposure draft. And that's released for comment again publicly. In my consultations over the years, I've sometimes seen draft legislation before it was even released to the public. And the purpose of that is often Treasury will speak to stakeholders or people that can give them expert opinion, and it helps shape the development of that drafting of the legislation before it goes public, just to make sure there aren't any problems, even at that really early stage. And, and sometimes there are, and those things get ironed out. Or they just want to test the water to see how big the outcry of despair might be. 
Look, I hope it's not about testing despair and putting toe in the water. I hope it's about saying, look, this is our objective. It's all about policy intent. This is what we're trying to do. And sometimes when it's drafted, the written word doesn't actually match up with the policy intent. And it's not because they're careless or it's like approach. It's simply a case that this is highly technical writing. And sometimes they can get bogged down in writing it and sometimes standing back from it or getting an external perspective helps them identify issues with it. So I've certainly been involved in discussions behind closed doors where there was a policy intent and when I saw the written word, it didn't match up. And I said to them, look, I don't think that's what you were trying to do. And they agreed. And then by the time the legislation was released in draft publicly, that had been fixed up. And that's just one example of, of how that process works. So the idea of draft legislation is we get to see what it looks like once it does go public. So you can start to prepare. I can think of some measures last year. There were amendments to the small business CGT concessions. Now, when originally announced in the budget, they were due to start 1 July 2017. But for eight months, we had no detail. We hadn't seen this draft legislation. And when they did release it on the 8th of February 2018, there was a lot more detail than we could have imagined from the original budget papers, so from the original announcement. And by this stage, we were eight months into that income year. People had already applied the current law to capital gains they'd made. Amounts had already been paid into superannuation based on the current law. But under these amendments, which were proposed to go back to 1 July 17, we ended up with provisions that could have made them ineligible. And then how do you unwind a contribution that's already been made into the, the super fund using the retirement exemption? So thankfully, that was a situation where the government listened and there was enormous feedback to say, look, this is unfair. And taxpayers didn't know what they were going to get until February. And yet you want to go back to 1 July 17. So thankfully, there was an amendment in the Senate. And as a result, the start date of that measure was the 8th of February 2018 which is an odd date, but it's the date the exposure draft legislation was released for comment. So those draft bills played enormous part in helping us to prepare for new legislation and provide some input back to the government. Certainly on some other draft legislation in 2017, this was to do with the corporate tax cuts. And in October 2017, the base rate entities bill was introduced into parliament, but that followed in back in September the release of draft legislation. And as part of tax banter, I put a submission in on that draft legislation, setting out my concerns and even things like the start date. They were proposing to start it a year earlier than they eventually did. And this is where you know, little voices can actually have a, a part to play in shaping the development of tax policy and making sure that it's fair and it's workable and it achieves what it's supposed to. So once we get past all the draft legislation, and this is beyond our control, we don't know when all these things happen, they just spring it upon us, but we end up with, of course, a bill being introduced into Parliament. Now, once a bill is formally introduced, it can sit there for days or weeks, months or even years. I have seen bills that were introduced into Parliament, passed within a day or two, enacted within a few days. That's clearly where the measure has bipartisan support, so both the the opposition and the government agree with it and that way it can pass through very, very quickly and, and there's no hiccup. But I've also seen bills sit before Parliament for years on end. I've also seen bills where they lapse with an election in the middle. So just to explain that process, when you get to the election every three years, as I said before, the lower house is completely dissolved. And a bill that is sitting before Parliament cannot carry from one Parliament into the next Parliament, as it's just not possible under the Constitution. 
So any bill that's before the lower house when the election is called, when the election writs are issued, it lapses. And then if the government wants to proceed with that measure in the new parliament, they have to reintroduce the bill formally. In the Senate, the bills don't actually lapse until the next session of parliament resumes after the election. And that's for the simple reason that the Senate isn't fully dissolved unless it's a double dissolution election, which we had back in 2016, but we didn't have it this time round. So as a result, the bills before the Senate still remain live at the moment, but they will lapse in the coming weeks when Parliament does resume. So just to give you an idea, there are currently 180 bills which are not proceeding. Now, they are bills which are either before the House of Reps and they have lapsed. They are bills which have been defeated in the Senate. So they were introduced, but they're not able to proceed. Or it may involve private members' bills. And a a private member bill is where an individual member of parliament introduces it, usually not from the government. And because they don't have the numbers in the House, it's very difficult for those measures to actually pass. By contrast, there are currently 171 bills showing as still before parliament, and they are bills that are currently in the Senate. So they are technically not lapsed yet, but they will lapse in the coming weeks when the next session of parliament does commence. So with bills lapsing, what can happen, I think, back to the trust loss provisions and many of your listeners would be aware that those measures have been around since the 9th of May, 1995. And that was when the then Labor Treasurer announced the trust loss measures. They were introduced into Parliament, and at the time, Paul Keating was Prime Minister. But he wasn't able to pass those measures before the March 96 election. The government changed. John Howard became Prime Minister. And following that election, he reintroduced the lapsed bill that had been introduced by the former Labor government. Then that bill went before Senate committees and sat there for a number of years. And it was some three years later or so that that piece of legislation actually got enacted. And yet the start date went back to the 9th of May 1995, despite not being enacted until about 1998. So that's not ideal. And, And when we look at the backdrop of everybody in the real world still getting on with transactions and entering into contracts and lodging tax returns and advisors giving advice. It becomes uh, difficult when you've got measures that can sit before parliament for so long and you don't know the status of them. So one of the issues coming out of this recent election is there are more than 80 tax and superannuation measures which have been announced by the government but not enacted. And so we're waiting to see exactly what the government does with those And we really need a a stock take. We need a a position on every one of those measures. Are they going to proceed with them? Are they going to abandon them? Or are they going to uh, further consult and there could be some changes to the policy? But of course, we're only just uh, a few weeks into the the post-election period. And so we're waiting for Parliament to resume properly. And hopefully that will happen very soon with uh, the government advising their list of measures. To explain the process of a bill passed by the lower house, Then it moves up to the Senate, and as I said, that could take days, weeks, months, or years to pass. Once the Senate has passed it, then it receives royal assent from the Governor-General, and that's usually a formality. I can't recall in recent times where the Governor-General has actually amended a bill or has said, no, it's got to go back and and change. So really, it is just a a technical sign-off. If the Senate makes an amendment to a bill, it's got to go back to the lower house, and that is because the House obviously wasn't privy to that amendment and they need to approve what the Senate has done. So sometimes you can see a bit of uh, going backwards and forwards between the two houses where the Senate does make an amendment. But most bills will simply uh, go through and they'll pass out the other end. 
And look, sometimes the media focuses on how much doesn't get done, but if you look at the last parliament, there are actually over 400 bills that were enacted. Now that's not just tax and superannuation, that's across all the portfolios. But it does show you that over time, over the term of a government, they do get a lot done. It's just the media likes to pick on the things that aren't getting done. That's just the political cycle. Can I just quickly ask you two questions? The first one is, I always thought of the Senate as the house of review. I think very often the, the Senate is referred to as the upper house or the house of review. And so I always assumed that any bill would be entered by the House of Representatives, voted on and then passed through the Senate. But then I read that apart from financial bills that always must be introduced into the lower house, so apart from financial bills, any other bill can be introduced into the lower house or the upper house. And that really surprised me because I always thought of the upper house as the house of review and not as the house of origin. Look, traditionally, you are correct, the Senate is typically the house of review and their assent or their approval of bills is needed before they can be enacted. But if you look at the Parliament House website and you print off a list of all the bills before Parliament, and, and now today is not a good day to do that because we're between Parliaments, but in the ordinary working day of a Parliament, you'll notice there is a list of bills that originated in the Senate. Now, it's not often that we see bills originate in the Senate and become major tax policy. Most of the bills that we work with, and there would be on average 10 to 15 tax and superannuation amendment bills a year. And these contain all the major budget measures and major policy changes and the integrity measures and so on. They typically do originate in the House of Representatives and they are then passed by the Senate. But you are quite correct in saying there are some bills that originate in the Senate and then that means they've got to be approved by the lower house before they can receive royal assent. Because of our two-house system, every bill has to get the approval of both houses. So in a sense, it doesn't really matter where it starts as long as both houses do approve it. But a, a bill that originates in the Senate would have to go back through the lower house and then it could receive royal assent. And also, if any measures were amended in the House of Representatives, that would have to go back to the Senate for approval. And then the second question is about the first, second and third reading. When I had a closer look at it, it looks to me like the first reading and the third reading is really just a formality because the first reading, for example, is basically just somebody declaring that the bill is read for the first time and then copies are distributed. And the third reading doesn't seem to be really of much content either. So the discussion really happens in the second reading, doesn't it? That is absolutely correct. So the first reading is really just the formal introduction of the bill. And a bill may be introduced without any further debate or discussion on it. The second reading is where all the noise happens. And the Hansard is a valuable document for this purpose because the Hansard, of course, records every spoken word in the chambers. And so when you've got proceedings underway, there would be question time or second reading debates or whatever, this is all being recorded through the Hansards. And this gives us very valuable insights as to why things change. So, for example, there was a, a bill that recently got enacted before the election. And when it went through the lower house and then it moved up to the Senate, it was amended in the House of Representatives to remove one of the schedules. Now, this is 2019 Measures Number 1 bill. And Schedule 1 of that bill was proposing to increase the maximum number of self-managed super fund members from four up to six. 
that measure was removed from the bill. And then it went up to the Senate. They said, yes, we agree with that change. And it went and got enacted without those measures in it. I went back to the Hansard to understand what had happened. And this is where we get some insights because if you just look at the fact that the bill was amended, all it tells you is that schedule came out. But it's the Hansard that says, oh, okay, Labor in opposition did not agree with that measure. And so that's why they wouldn't provide their support for it. The government said, well, we don't agree with you, but we are, we're prepared to amend the bill now. So the government still stands by the measure and they still want to increase the maximum number up to six, but they didn't want to have the fight there and then and hold up the rest of the bill. And so they agreed to remove that schedule from it. So when you're talking about changes being made, yes, that can occur. The third question is, where does the actual political power play take place? Does it take place when it goes to the Senate or does it take place while the bill is drafted? Or where does the real power play take place? Or is it all the way through? Is there not one particular point, but they're fighting all the way through until it's finally passed? Look, it's a great question. And I think whilst it's still not yet a bill, we've got the announcement, the discussion paper and the exposure draft stages. That's all in the hands of Treasury. It's When you talk about power play, it depends whose power. It's probably the best opportunity to help shape the policy because once a bill is formally introduced into Parliament, and, and even Treasury has said this to me in conversations, it's very difficult to amend bills. It's much easier to get something altered for the better when it's still sitting as uh, exposure draft legislation. Once it's formally introduced, it's then got to be put through as a formal amendment to the bill whilst it's sitting in either chamber. And that becomes difficult. So the lobbying would take place at the very start before it's an official bill. That's part of the lobbying. But there is, for example, another measure which um, has got a lot of airtime in the past couple of years. It's a proposal to deny the main residence exemption to foreign residents. And that's a measure that I and a number of other advocates have been particularly vocal on. My position on it is I'm not opposed to a non-resident being denied the main residence exemption. My difficulty with the measure is that it's a retrospective amendment. And whilst Treasury maintains that it's based on CGT events that happen from 2017 or 2019, depending on um, whether you can access a transitional rule or not, the effect is it's treating non-residents as if they had never lived in properties in Australia. And this is particularly an issue for Australian expats. So when we talk about lobbying, yes, you can um, certainly make submissions and provide feedback and comments to Treasury before the bill's formally introduced. Once the bill is introduced, now it's in the hands of typically the senators and that's where the power is. So if you're wanting to have a, a, an influence or try and shape what the final look of a bit of legislation looks like, attention at this point now turns to the crossbench. Now, if it was the government in control of the upper house, you'd just go and talk to the government. But when they don't control the upper house, they are having to negotiate with the crossbenchers or with the opposition or with the Greens. So a lot of the communications that I've had over the past couple of years in respect of this main residence exemption measure has been directly contacting senators on the crossbench. I've been writing to them. I've been explaining the mechanism involved and what I've suggested as a, a preferable mechanism to prorate the days or reset the cost base to market value. So I think there are really two main avenues for the advocacy work. One is the shaping of the policy as it's being drafted before it hits parliament. But then after it hits parliament, if you still want to 
try and shape the way that eventually looks, then it's a case of approaching directly the individual senators or, or the House of Reps members. You can, of course, talk to Treasury throughout this, but they generally say, well, it's now in the hands of the politicians. It's, um, it's beyond Treasury's control now. And I, and I think what's important to remember is throughout this whole process, the tax office doesn't get involved in the design of policy as much. They, they can suggest changes and they can identify problem areas, but it's really Treasury who designs and writes the policy. And if you try and speak to the tax office during that design process, they will say to you, look, we can't administer that yet because it's not law. So it's only once a bill has been enacted that the ATO can then provide guidance and step in with, um, with information. Having said that, if there is a measure before Parliament for too long, or if there is uncertainty relating to the status of a measure, you'll often find the ATO provides some guidance. And they'll say, look, it's not yet law, and this could still change, but in the meantime, this is our, our approach to it. And they did that certainly with things like the rate of franking with the corporate tax cuts, which took about two years to make their way through Parliament by the time that was all said and done. We've got that currently with the personal tax cuts that are proposed. So we've already got some tax cuts enacted. There are more tax cuts that are proposed coming out of this year's budget. And if those tax cuts go through, some of them will go back to 1 July 18. At the moment, we're on this side of June 30, so it doesn't really impact on the preparation of tax returns. But within a few weeks, we're going to be on the other side of June 30, and people will be lodging and, and preparing those 2019 tax returns. So the ATO has now provided guidance that depending on when the amendments are enacted, uh, that will determine their approach and how they deal with this. But um, this is one of these tricky situations where we could end up with legislation that's amended and enacted after the start date, and then it's a, a case of how the ATO is going to administer that. One more question. When a bill goes to the House of Review and then the House of Review doesn't accept it but has amendments, then the bill has to go back to the House of Origin. Does it then have to go through the first, second and reading again or is there then a, a less onerous process? Oh, that's a good question. So certainly if a bill goes up to the Senate and it's amended, it's got to come back to the lower house. I think at that stage it probably goes back to a second reading. I don't think it's a first reading. But it's actually just a formality anyway, because the first and the third reading don't really do much anyway. So it doesn't really matter whether they're there or not, as long as the second reading takes place. All the work's done in the second reading, and certainly the House has to accept the change from the Senate. When you're looking at the status of bills, and you can do this any time on the Parliament House website, you can also track them. So if you want to be notified by email when something's changed with that bill, you can log in and tick that bill. And then when it's passed by either house or it's enacted or amended or whatever, you get an email letting you know that. So that can be very handy. Certainly, once it goes back to the lower house, um, the third reading is just that formality. And when you look at the bill page, the third reading indicates it's been accepted and now it's just awaiting royal assent. And that can take, look, typically just a few days, but I have seen a number of weeks pass by before the Governor-General actually signs off the bill. Oh, I see. Okay, so the period between acceptance and royal assent is basically the third reading. No, third reading will happen, and that basically means it's been accepted by the Parliament. Once it's passed the third reading, then it awaits royal assent. Yeah, okay. Welcome back. So this episode was all about the legislative side of our government. In the next episode, episode 146, Robin Jacobson will talk about the courts and the ATO as the second and third arm of government of our tax system. 
Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.